Hello, welcome to Design is Everywhere, the weekly podcast from the Design Museum and our first ever live show. I'm your host, Sam Aquilano. I'm the founder and executive director of Design Museum Everywhere. Each week on our show, we tackle a different element of design and explore how it impacts our everyday lives. We always have the help of a new guest co-host who is an expert in their field, and we interview a guest about their work in design because design is everywhere and so are we. This week, we've partnered again with BossNOMA, that's the Boston chapter of the National Organization for Minority Architects, to present here at ABX, that's the Architecture Boston Expo, in front of all of you on Zoom, talking about bringing your full self to professional design work and how the process can lead to more equity and inclusion in design. We've been talking a lot about the design industry, and those of you listening to the podcast can't see me, but I am a white male. The design industry is predominantly white and male, that's weird. <laughs> That's not great because we're designing for everyone, right? Design needs to be more inclusive. The whole design practice and industry sits just like everything in a culture of white supremacy that we all live in. So if you're a designer and you're not white, you might feel like you have to change yourself or you can't bring yourself to your work. And that does not lead to the best work outcomes. It's just not right. And so what if the design industry and the design industry culture shifted to include more diverse perspectives and allowed everyone to bring their full selves to design practice? As I've shared in the past and just shared now, I am a white cisgendered man. I don't have the lived experience to be able to have real insights on this topic, but my goal always is to create a safe space for these conversations and bring them to you all. So I'm extremely lucky to have two experts in architecture with me today. My guest co-host is Boss Noma's Julian Phillips. And our special guest is Ja D. Williams from Mass Design Group. To start our chat off, Julian Phillips is here with us. Julian has a bachelor's in architectural studies from Southern Illinois University and his master's from Massachusetts College of Art and Design. He currently serves as Boss Noma's secretary and is an architectural designer at Goody Clancy, an architecture preservation and planning firm in Boston's Back Bay. Julian combines his background in visual arts and STEM education with architecture and he teaches architecture and design courses for youth programs at MassArt. Julian, it's great to see you. It's great to have you here. Hey Sam, how's it going? It's going good. I had mentioned that you teach design and architecture courses. So what are you discovering, you know, from like the next generation of designers? What are they thinking about? Like what problems are they identifying and things that they want to tackle in their careers? To be specific, I teach youth programs, so it's high school students mm -hmm. mostly. Uh, and the the sort of the how it's more of like how I introduce it. I, I'm always teaching them architecture, but I'm always like putting out disclaimers, like you know, there's a lot of mm. people who do this who don't do this anymore. Or I highlight people like Virgil Abloh. I know on the last podcast, Xavier sort of mentioned him too. I always am like thinking outside of. Uh, this this architecture realm that we've created for ourselves and people have created uh around you know the the eurocentric values of what it means to be an architect uh so when i sort of hear or listen to students they are <laughs> unhinged like they they actually don't because they're not taught the constraints um they sort of have these ideas that seem like inventions to a skilled architect, but in in the real sense of what it is, it's imagination, you know? Um, that sense of imagination is probably like the most special thing for young people right now and like what I'm seeing in them. And I'm like, oh, okay. I get to sort of bring that into the office and say, hey, I will build 
three to six study models. I'm not trying to be mad about it. Like, just let me do that. Let me bring in uh, that space and sort of observe space and like perceive space and really think about what it looks like uh, in a space before we build it. I think that's probably one of the biggest things that they know how to imagine and visualize. Like they, they always are getting themselves into situations then they're not afraid to get themselves out of it. And being an educator in that sense is probably like one of the most rewarding things because to put somebody in a, in a pigeonhole and like we've all been there, like a professor's like, okay, cool. I'm throwing something, a, a wrench in this situation. But to sort of see people and, and guide students through those challenges are pretty much the most rewarding things about it, I would say. Yeah. This episode, we're you know chatting about bringing our full selves to work. What does that mean to you to be able to bring your full self to your work? As a Black male, um, which is important to just go ahead and put that out there, I don't really get a choice to do that. You know, people sort of like, okay, cool. Like this is, this is the only black guy in, in, in this space. Um, but somehow he is navigating, you know, like somehow he's like, uh, persistent about pushing himself into situations. Like, and I think that bringing your force up to work is really putting yourself out there and like not being afraid to like, cause I, I'm birthed from two really awesome humans and my dad is full-fledged like a radical like full-fledged conspiracy theorist but my mom is like this over-educated beautiful black woman who just is like fully like pristine in so many ways and just honestly over-educated but they have sort of instilled this confidence in me to where I'm in spaces asking project managers really difficult question, not being afraid to be like, hey, we got a human user here and y'all haven't brought it up. <laughs> like, and, and I think that being yourself is really just sort of having casual conversations. Like I don't like tension. I don't like being uncomfortable um, because like most of my life I've had to be the only one. I've sort of gotten mm -hmm. comfortable with being uncomfortable. So for me to sort of be a black person in a space, I am only, and somebody said this today in one of our symposium calls, it's like, you are an example for people coming after you. So if you do good, if you do well, then like the people after you have it easier and then they do even better. And I'm just honestly and genuinely Thinking about that, I'm like, if I ask this mm -hmm. difficult question to a partner in charge, the next time in five years, like maybe I'll, when I get my license, like maybe I'll be in that space. Like, you know, like I'm, I'm always sort of like expecting the best out of what I can give to people. And that best self is like really your full self. Like you just like, okay, I'm gonna do the best I can or do the best I got. And if you take it or leave it, you know, so not being afraid of people leaving it because <laughs> I'm not going to act like I have all this charisma, you know. Um, <laughs> Which, of course, you do. Thanks. It, it's really <laughs> just, I don't even know. I guess it's like from my dad's side, like a, like a hustle mentality. But I think yeah. it, to be important, like, is not the answer. Like, I just yeah, really, yeah. really value human connection. And, um, yeah, human connection is like the purest part of design to be real about it, because if you can go in a conversation with your user and your client and bring them together, then which is not really done all the time in architecture, then you sort of have a new outlook on design. Um, money sort of gets pushed to the back, which we can talk about capitalism later, but you know, that's, <laughs> that's a whole, <laughs> yeah, that's a whole other episode. Can of worms. Like, <laughs> yeah. So that's pretty much how I'm doing it. I don't think it's like a secret potion or anything. What about the environments around InDesign, like the design practice culture? 
could change to help people bring themselves to their work? I'll be honest about where I am in the profession. So I started my uh, job in like this professional career. Um, well, I, t- I took a gap year in Nashville um, mm-hmm. in between undergrad and graduate school. And that's was where I did like low-key in an apprenticeship. I was like under somebody and working closely with one or two architects. But the first time I had a full-fledged like firm job was January, um, right before mm-hmm. everything kind of closed down. Wow. So yep. my view on this uh, <laughs> this word is a little bit different. Like I have the quarantine lens a little bit, you know, and as a young person, I, w- I want to speak to that and like just be um, real about the fact that in in this virtual world that we're living in, it actually brought people together more. Um, the, the, the architecture community is very siloed, like extremely siloed. Um, and the only reason I say it's so siloed in Boston is because my first ever introduction to architecture was through Chicago architecture, which is almost opposite. And I don't want to sound negative when I say that because I don't mean that. But in, in Chicago in general, there is this like real activism that just innately happens with people. People are not afraid to be activists. And in, architect, in the architecture community, that community is stronger because people are talking about these kind of conversations well before we've had a racial pandemic. You know, they mm-hmm, sort of are not afraid to use architecture as a, a catalyst all the time in many ways, whether it's a building skin or whether it's um, the, the Chicago Culture Center, which we'll get into that later. Even to be honest, like, and I, I know I'm pivoting from the question, but I want to like segue for this because the first architecture that I've seen that really was like, oh, we can do this was uh, something that Ja uh, did, you know, the... The Gun Valley Memorial was in the Chicago Architectural, the, the Chicago Cultural Center. And in that, I was there. I go to, my friends and I go to the Chicago Open House, which is you just go around, you look at buildings, it's really dope. And um, the Chicago Architecture Biennale was in, at that time, which is in a culture center, which is like free, open to the public, right? I walk in this space, my friend and I were just bopping around like we always do. And these four white structures like hit us in the face and we're just like, okay, whoa, what's going on? And, and of course you see mass design group and you're like, Ooh, this must be like compelling, you know? <laughs> and um, we walk up to the structure and the structure is um, four structures actually. And it's brick and mortar, but it's not. And the bricks are actually displaced and in their places are artifacts. And you just walking around, moving through, you're like, wow, like, what's going on? This is a story. I don't know what story it is. But because uh, I'm the type of person, I read placards at the end. And I start to recognize that, like, these are artifacts, you know, and it's a lot of them. And by the end, it's a video attached to it, and of course, a placard. And then you realize that all of these are, yes, they're stories, but more importantly, they're artifacts of people whose lives were taken because of police brutality. And in that moment, my friends and I are like, what is going on? <laughs> Had to sit down. One of my friends broke down, started crying. Like, we're just sitting there. And then, but the thing is, is like, we reflected, you know, we took time to understand what was happening. We took time to educate ourselves about something that we didn't know about. And architecture did that, you know, the, like yeah. that, that is what architecture is. And I That's think- That's the power. To, yeah, that is the power. And like, to loop back into your question is like, where do I fit into that? Or where, how am I saying that? It's like, starting conversations, being uh, a part of conversations. And one of the biggest things that sort of has helped uh, with quarantine is like being able to be in conversations that you're really not supposed to be in. 
you know, as a young person. And it's really important that we are starting to seep into these spaces that have been siloed and these meetings that have been locked gated. And now because of the virtual society that we live in, it's starting to open up. And Boston has really, really, really particular opportunity to do something with what we already have, which is not bad, but it is important that we sort of look and analyze at what we do have and figure out how we can all move forward together as a vote, because whether or not we like it, firm leaders are communicating. And if they're not asking each other questions, trying to learn from one another, trying to really grow and be honest and vulnerable about the decisions that they haven't, haven't made, that they have made or haven't made, um, that weren't good and how they resolve them. That's how we grow and learn. It's a community and like really understanding that Boston architecture is a community and it's a very diverse community. ABX has shown that it's so many consultants, so many different types of people that are in this space. And it really takes looking at one another first before mm-hmm. we start to look out. Yeah. Oh, that's so powerful. Starting those conversations and community. I mean, that's the takeaway. Awesome, man. Thank you so much for being here and sharing your perspective. Of course, Sam. Listeners, you can learn more about Julian's work at goodyclancy.com. All right. Stay with us, Julian, and we'll bring Jadi into our conversation after a quick break. If you like this podcast, then you will love Design Museum Everywhere. It's a museum that comes to you wherever you are. That's right. Design Museum Everywhere is all about making design education and inspiration accessible to everyone. Become a member today and join a global community of design thought leaders and change makers. Everyone can be a designer. We can all appreciate and advocate for the transformational impact that design can have. Membership starts at just $3 a month and you get access to virtual Design Museum live events, discounts, and our Design Museum magazine sent right to your doorstep. Just go to designmuseumeverywhere.org to join today, and your name will be listed in our next issue of Design Museum magazine, which will be sent to Design Museum members all over the world. That's designmuseumeverywhere.org to be part of this global community. We're back. Julian and I are joined by our special guest, Jadi Williams. Jadi is a senior associate at Mass Design Group. She worked on the Gun Violence Memorial Project and is currently working on the Franklin Park Master Plan. She received her bachelor's in architecture from Northeastern University and her master's from University of Pennsylvania. Jadi is also a spoken word artist. She is the founder, co-host, and spoken word artist for the If You Can Feel It, You Can Speak It open mic movement which is committed to providing a platform for expression to the LGBTQIA communities of color. Jadi, welcome. Thank you so much. So excited to be here. This is good. Yeah, it's great to have you. I love yeah. these conversations. So I'm thrilled to have you and Julian here. Um, really, I want Julian to be asking the questions, but I'm just going to kick it off. How did you learn about design and why did you study architecture? Yeah, so those are going to be two slightly different answers. Um, <laughs> In terms of how I learned about design and specifically architecture, uh, it's a beautifully tragic story, sort of, in that (laughs) I was a MECO student. uh, So I'm born and raised in Boston. This is my city. This is where I'm from. I've left and I will always come back and I will always leave again. But (laughs) as a a MECO student, I was bused from Boston proper to a suburb for most of my education. And it happened to be Arlington Mm. was the town that I that I did my schooling in. And so In school, I was an overachiever. Again, I'll tell y'all more about my mother and you'll understand why I was an overachiever. But, you know, I'm 
top three in the class, very honors and AP classes, doing all the things I'm supposed to be doing. And we come to the point to where folks are starting about college applications and all of my peers are essentially applying to their parents' alma maters or their parents are kind of guiding them through that process. And my mother, amazing woman, very strong, beautiful, capable woman, left high school, dibbled and dabbled in dental school for a bit, and then went straight to the police academy. So mm. I'm a first-generation college student. So my mother really had no idea what to say to me about this collegiate experience. And quite honestly, we had a conversation once, and she was like, look, kid, you're about to be 18. If you don't want to go to college, you don't have to. Like, you've done what I told you to do. This is up to you now. <laughs> wow, awesome. Um, so yeah, she was just like, I want you to be a happy person. Like, that mm -hmm. is my priority. That's and so great. I go to my guidance counselor, and I was like, hey, what is this college thing about? Like, yeah. what school should I apply to? And my guidance counselor says, well, you know, what do you want to go to school for? And I say, I, for school. I thought it was literally like a continuation of high school. I didn't realize that I had to choose a major and that, you know, my major would depend, like, would be contended upon where I wanted to be and what city I wanted to move to, like all these factors all these things. And it was very overwhelming, to be honest with you. And so uh, in my frustration, I'm like, look, I don't know. I just want to go to school. And so then they ask, well, what are you good at? And this is where I'm I'm embarrassed at this point. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm good at everything. Okay, yeah. I'm about to Help do great. <laughs> Third in the class. <laughs> and so she's like, well, what do you like? And so I was like, okay, now I can actually answer mm. these questions. And I responded with, I prefer math and science over English and history. I love art. And outside of school, I like to travel with my mom. So the response there was, okay, great. You should be an architect. I said, fabulous. I'm out. I go to the library. I look up architect. I spell it incorrectly. I finally figure out how to spell it. And I read what it is. And I'm like, yeah, I could totally do this. So as a result, I now have to apply to schools that don't require a portfolio because I don't have one. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and thank God for Northeastern yes. University for having the program that it has and also for accepting me um, because it's at Northeastern where I learned the capacity of architecture and design. And I actually learned that really architecture is a vehicle for social change, mm -hmm. which obviously I did not read in the definition when I looked it up. So how I got to architecture and why I stayed are slightly two different things because it was what I was inspired by and learned at Northeastern about, again, this like this engine for social change and the ways that I could impact the world that I lived in that I learned at Northeastern that really kept me engaged and involved. And then later on, um, and we can talk about this more, but as I thought about quitting <laughs> and I reflected on the lack of representation for bodies and experiences like my own, I was encouraged to stay as a result of that. So mm. that's how I got here and that's why I'm still here. Oh, I love that. And now I'm like a great... Julianne, this is like a mission of Boss Noma and Design Museum would be like for that next, you know, high school girl to look up architecture and see that it's a way to make change, <laughs> social yes. change. Like that's, yes. if we can get there, that would be wonderful. Uh, so exactly. thank you for that, Ja. That's awesome. You're welcome. All right, Julian, I'll let you take it away. Ja, first off, thank you so much. Um, it's really important that you are in these spaces. And I do mean it from the bottom of my heart because I've seen you and I want to just talk about and just preference a question really quickly with the fact that and be blunt and say, you know, when my friends and I think about firms and when we're uh, we think about the architecture community, we sort of talk about the fact and one of my friends mentioned this the other day. When they think about architecture, they actually see a lot of people of color because the people that they went to school with and the people that they like are homies with are in architecture. They're usually women. Like it's just more diverse than the actual, you know, 
senior members Mm -hmm. in architecture. Um, Mm -hmm. And a lot of that has to do with statistics. Uh, And we don't even, at this point in our lives, like we don't even have to say them anymore, you know? Less than 2% we're working with, and even less for Black women like yourself. So I want to just talk about doubt. Because a lot of that is doubt, you know, a lot of what we're carrying as minorities into architecture firms, into architecture meetings are, is this, uh, lack, this lackluster of the actual architecture profession. We're sort of like, you know what, I'm not supposed to be here. I'm not supposed to do mm-hmm. this. Mm-hmm. I'm not supposed to, and that equates to doubt. And mm-hmm. I want to sort of start that off, uh, start us off with, um, understanding how you look past that and how you have sort of taking yourself uh, into many spaces like um, and been who you are, but carry that doubt or not carry that doubt? Definitely, definitely. Um, such a great question. Before I answer it, though, I did remember that I wanted to backtrack really quickly on something that's very important that you said about the Gun Violence Memorial Project. And I'm so glad that you were inspired by it and that you had an opportunity to see it. I just wanted to clarify that the victims that are honored in that memorial are not victims of gun violence due only to police brutality or police gun deaths. It's a wider uh, representation of gun violence in this country in general. And like part of the memorial is actually to begin to change the perception of how folks view this gun violence epidemic to understand that there are so many forms of gun violence and so many ways in which, unfortunately, we are losing so many lives to this epidemic. So I just I wanted to clarify that. But yeah, to answer your question, who this doubt, let me tell you all something. This doubt is is on me. It is, it is in me. I, I do not know that I will ever actually get away from it. And in part, I'm okay with that because I feel like it, it fuels me if I'm being honest. Um, but whether it is conscious, you know, whether folks have said things to me that have put this doubt in me or whether it's been like subtle subconscious by being in environments where I am not represented, where I am not invited, where I'm not respected, what, what, regardless as to what end of the spectrum it's on, it is here. And it is something that I am constantly navigating. I think people often talk about imposter syndrome um, as a form of this doubt and like Having to every day remind myself that I am competent, I am capable, I am worthy, I am blessed, right? Like I am abundant. All these things I have to keep doing every day, especially when not just design or the or where I'm working, but the world is telling me that I am not. Right. Like I constantly am getting messages from all sorts of directions telling me that as a black queer woman, I am not worthy. And so there I'll pause and I'll let those that like aren't seeing us on video know that I am a light skinned black woman. I have big curly hair that's currently trying to be flattened, flattened by these headphones. I love but I'm the not headphones. letting it happen. <laughs> yeah, I had to tuck them back. You did this a hair, great job. Thank you, boo. I was like, no, we are not. <laughs> this hair will be here. Um, but yes, I am a glasses wearing person. Um, and as I was saying, like the world is constantly signaling to me that I do not belong for whatever reason. And so, yes, I'm walking around with doubt. But at the same time, I'm walking around with my mother in my heart, right? Like I am walking around with my fiance in my mind. I'm walking around with my community backing me all day, every day. I have very intentionally built myself a tribe of family, friends, peers, coworkers, whatever, to say, look, I need y'all to be able to remind me of my value 
even subconsciously sometimes when there are moments where I can't feel it. Like I, because I, I know what this world is like. I've identified it. I've understood it. And I refuse to allow it to get in the way of the work that I was put here to do. So like, although the, the doubt is there with me, I also have tools in place where I'm able to remind myself like, no, you got this. And then like, to be honest, I purposefully went to Northeastern in order to figure out what architecture was. Then I took two years off to teach at the BAC and to bartend and to perform because I was exhausted and like got my behind handed to me in architecture school because I was not prepared. But in that time, I made the very conscious decision to go to Penn because it was an Ivy League institution. And I said to myself, I was like, look, y'all are not going to tell this black girl she can't walk into the room because I, I did it your way. I have your papers. Like, I you know, I went to your school. So like you, you have to let me in just off of the strength of that. And then maybe we can have a conversation about all my other credentials. Right. So I've also educated or obtained certain levels of education and experience in addition to building up my community in order to constantly combat this doubt. Right. Thinking of credentials is so important because, um, as people of color, especially in design and architecture, um, a lot of people, um, talk about, the license, you know, and a lot of people talk about this licensure. And one thing that David Lee, who's an architect in Boston, a black architect in Boston, um, at Stolen Lee Architects, is the fact that no one can take a credential away from you. Once you achieve something, like you're saying you went to Penn, like once you achieve something, no one can take that away from you. It's what you do with that after, um, which is really important. And um, but at the end of the day, like it, there's this amount of self-worth that is sort of that you sort of have to write on your own. And I sort of want to get into this community thinking and let, allow us to be community thinkers for a moment um, as we try not to jump all, all over the place. But I do want to get a, a lot of ground covered in, in a short amount of time. When The other day, we sort of, uh, I sat in on a panel that you were on and there was a lot of conversation around um, spaces in public space. And I know that you all at Mass Design Group work with public space a lot. And I wanted to know if, because this is something that you said, um, you said the individual narratives sometimes are ignored um, in public spaces. And I want to just sort of get some insight from you because I, I do think of everything that Bossama does as a resource. Um, yes, we're agents of change, but like for sure uh, resources as well. And I want to just get some insight about how these individual narratives sort of start to make them that their way into public spaces or even we can stay with public spaces actually if you like sure i mean i think one of the ways that these broader narratives it's not even necessarily just like the individual narratives it's the broader narratives uh that really need to be told the ways that they make their way into public spaces is by a different approach to design an, an approach to design that is very community human oriented and based, right? I think in some instances, you typically have uh, a client who has the capital, who has the resources to initiate a project and they approach an architect and together the two of them come up with what the project ultimately needs to be. And then somewhere in the process, they consult, they have a few touch points with some community leaders and like they say, okay, this is what we're going to do. And then, and then the project results. Whereas the other option could be, you know, 
maybe an architect or maybe a developer, maybe the potential client goes to a broader community and says, is there something that you need? <laughs> is there something that you want? Do you see an opportunity here within this space, within this community? Is there a void, et cetera? Okay, then how can we, in collaboration with a design team, come together to create the most impactful, productive space? And so like for us at Mass, we work with project partners and organizations that are also mission aligned. And oftentimes they are already doing work within the community. And through that work, they've identified what they believe to be an opportunity to, you know, work on a built project or built space or something like that. And so it's inherent in that approach and in that process that we're working with the community. But I think that that system can be applied more broadly to say, how does architecture genuinely serve the people in a way such that it makes space for broader narratives to be told in public space? And then like more specifically, and this kind of answers the question, but it might get us away a little bit. One of the projects that I'm working on uh, or am loosely related to at this point in the process is the King Memorial here in Boston. That is such an honor for me because it is the first time in Boston where I will be able to see on Boston Common a black woman's love being celebrated right? Obviously, there are so many more layers to this memorial. We could talk about that for those that don't know about the project, but like, that's the part that's resonating for me. And so when I say broader narratives, it's that level of conversation that I'm talking about. Yeah. And you know, that, that memorial is actually going to, it's, it, to talk about it more, it's in Boston Common, which is a strategic uh, placemaking mm -hmm. tool too, because right across the street is the public garden. And for that to be the site is really important. And, I, and if um, we have a moment uh, to just think about what and like sort of recognize and imagine the type of space that could become. Um, I I like the something else that I think you said yesterday um, that progress is required for activism. You know, and do you think of these projects that you're doing as progress? Like, how do you sort of like? Because one thing that we've done today um, in a panel at this ABX. Um, symposium the, the Boston uh, space is understanding how we could do better and like mm. the challenges that we've had and I'm mm -hmm. sort of intrigued by how you think about the work that you are doing at Mass and sort of if if it equates to the type of progress that you expected for yourself in your career right now Yes, this is the exact kind of work that I was hoping to do in my career and quite honestly prior to coming to Mass I was almost on my way out of the industry altogether because I was very frustrated. I was loving the work that I was doing. I knew that I was learning a lot. Um, you know, I was on interdisciplinary teams. I was getting a lot of technical information, but I was also very frustrated because I could not see the impact that my work was having on broader communities, right? I, I could not understand how this particular building or this particular project was going to, in the long run, change somebody's life, uh, move them to certain action, inspire activism, all these things. I could not see that. And that's really why I'm here. That's why I'm in design. And so I was about to step out of architecture, go full time into poetry and organizing and art, and then just like look for ways to keep my design tools sharpened by maybe like teaching or something like that. And so coming to mass actually revived my passion and convinced me that this work is possible 
in a collective, right? Like I, I don't have to be an individual person out here trying to like scramble to scrap up what it is that I want to be doing. Like there's an entire organization of 140 plus people that are out here doing this work full time and I get paid for it. Like that is a blessing. I could not imagine being anywhere else. And I'm so grateful that I answered the call because I've been inspired daily and like challenged daily about how to think about the ways in which we as a profession can reinvent this work and like how we can bring it back to, and we're not bring it back to return it back to the people that it's actually serving. Um, and so definitely where I think I should be, uh, definitely blessed and excited about where I am. Do I want to flip this computer some days? Yes. But, <laughs> but I would, there's no place I'd rather be really. Actually, I, have Googled you and seen all your spoken word. I'm going to be honest, you're a celebrity to me. I'm not afraid to say that. My friends and I look at look for minorities on architecture firms' websites all the time. That's how we did it. You know, yep. you yep. look for people who are like you. Uh, if yep. firm leaders are, if you're out there, just so you know, a little pro tip. Yes. If you want minorities, you got to show them off. You got to, and not in a tokenism type right. of way either. You right. sort of have to embed them into the office culture into the, the mechanics of what mm -hmm. makes uh an office or a firm the firm and i mm -hmm. think that i've heard a really beautiful story about how you engage um mass design and the poetry and like how you sort of bring that part into you because i'm be honest please please go listen to jody williams you oh can google God. her it'll come up don't her do this so for sure. <laughs> and i'm sure to be linked Thank you, Sam. It's going to be linked. It's so <laughs> sick. She is a beast for real, for real. Like my Angelou vibes, like I'm not even trying I to be can't. like that. But no, real talk. Like you, you, you really transport people. And like, and mm. I felt transported when I was listening to a lot of your work. And I know how important that is in architecture for creating narratives around the type of work that you do. And I want you to just speak to how you sort of do that um, today at Mass. Well, one, I think the way that I'm able to translate what I'm going to call the skill set that I've gained from being a spoken word artist into my work here at Mass is my my engagement skills, right? And my speaking skills. I am very comfortable in front of a room. And I don't, it doesn't matter who's in the room, whether or not I've been in the room before. That makes me no difference because I'm accustomed to standing on a stage in front of hundreds of people and like giving them the most private scared parts of myself. So to stand up in front of a room and talk to a design that I collaborated on, I'm like, this is light work. We can do this, right? So I, I'm able to bring that skill set, which I also did not realize was um, a point of inspiration for my peers and for my colleagues because others have reflected to me. They're like, Ja, watching you speak convinces me that I can do this. And I'm like, no, you definitely can. It takes time and it takes energy, but like you can do this. So that's one way. I think the other way, um, really is like kind of similar, but I have a certain level of comfort with new communities because as a spoken word artist, if you're going to somebody's open mic or if you're going to go teach a workshop or something, you very quickly have to read the room, right? And like take inventory of who's there and like get a feeling for like who's participating, who's not and et cetera. So when I'm uh, going to a community engagement meetings, I'm very nimble in the room. I, I'm, I'm looking for you. Even if you're not looking for me, I'm looking for you. And we're going to find somewhere in this hour that we have together, some uh, a level of communication tool that works for you in order for me to be able to have this knowledge, knowledge exchange with you. Uh, a more 
direct way that I've been able to fold poetry into my architecture work is actually when I first started at Mass, I think I was like two maybe a month or two in and I, you know, sitting at my desk, minding my business, doing some work. And one of our founders, Michael Murphy says to me, Hey, we, we have this interview coming up. We're working on this project. Do you want to come to Detroit with me to be on the interview team? And I'm shocked. I'm taken aback right. because my first answer is no, bruh. Like, <laughs> like everywhere ease I'm up. Ease right? up. I'm like, I just got here. You I don't got a TED talk, bruh. Right. Like, <laughs> be there. <laughs> but for me, first of all, it was like a, it, it wasn't a culture shock. That's not the word I'm looking for, but it was like a shock because up until that point for six and a half, seven years of working, I had never left the office. I think I had gone to like two client meetings up until that point. And here he is like talking about getting on a plane to go be part of the interview to potentially get the like competition. And so at first I was like, I don't know if he's talking to me, if he meant to be like talking around me, but you also, the one thing y'all will learn about me is I have a personal motto. I always say yes. No is not an option, especially if I'm terrified. If what you've said has caught me off guard, there is, there's more reason for me to say yes. So I say yes. Long story short, we're preparing for the interview. We're talking about the project. I'm being brought in to talk about our community engagement work at Mass, which I'm also still learning about in the process. And uh, Michael says, you know, well, what about performing a spoken word poem? And I said, where? And he's like, during the interview. And again, I'm looking at this man like, what is wrong with you? This is not architecture. Like, what are you talking about? And so we have this 45 minute interview. There's six of us on the team, all interdisciplinary, representing the different offices. Everybody has had something to say up to this point. And I'm pretty sure the jurors and those in the audience are like, oh, they got this black girl up here, you know, just for show, like tokenism. She ain't even saying nothing, all these things. And in the last like 10 minutes, I stand up, no introduction, and I perform a spoken word poem called We Decided that I wrote in collaboration with the community as a flash mob. And it's basically a poem about black bodies existing in space. And after I share the poem, I reference, I say, this is the one of the ways where we can think about how to engage a broader community for the purpose of this project. Like, where can we go out into the public and how can we bring them to the table, especially those who historically have not been invited to the table, have not had interest at being at the table, did not know that there was space for them at the table. I said, spoken word poetry is but one way that we could create the vehicles and open the doors to bring in the community. And the jury was not ready. I was not ready. They were not ready. And it was beautiful. I have one live question, which I'm excited about, from Andrea. Andrea, can you hear us? Yes, thank you. My question is, uh, do you have a prediction for how design will change and how is it going to look different 20 years from now? I'm so curious about like the metric of 20 years. I don't, I, I'm interested in how it's going to look five years from now. I am, I am impatient. <laughs> I don't, I don't have time. I mean, granted like 20 years obviously gives us time to bring up new classes through design education and et cetera. And like, you know, folks to grow a bit, but, um, I, I am very hopeful that the political climate that we're currently in right now, the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, the critique that is happening across the board, not just in design, but just like across the board against like white supremacy and the perpetuation of a singularity and like a singer, singular model, like all these critiques that are happening, I'm very hopeful that they're going to inspire 
uh, quite an abrupt change in the ways that we do things. Like I'm, I'm hoping that it is creating a sense of urgency and a sense of aggressiveness, quite frankly, to demand the shifts in these industries that a lot of us have for a long time been waiting for. So I think 20 years from now, it's, it's completely different. I think it's nothing like what it is right now. Maybe, maybe with the basics, like we still need buildings to stand, right? Like there's certain things that have to stay, but I think the whole system is changed in 20 years. I'm, I'm completely different. Yeah. Completely different. I'll like snap into the 20 years because I'm an extreme optimist. Like, and I'm Mm -hmm. okay with being like, I'm an extreme optimist. Sometimes it's a little naive, but I'm like, just carry it out. And I think that when I think about 20 years, I think about where I am right now as a junior staff member and all the people that I talked about in the community that I understand that I know as being people of color, queer people, like just minorities in general, women mostly in architecture. And I put that in 20 years and I sort of define it as architecture. And I do the work right now, um, like this podcast or like being involved in Boss Noma, I do the work right now so that can exist. So, you know, I, I think a lot of people, especially our age, like don't like want to be impactful so bad. And I think that the biggest way to be impactful is to sort of like be yourself and like do that full self and the full and bring that full self to design. Because in 20 years, you could be a in anything you could start to redefine like we could define redefine the landscape of architecture in general so that 20 year mark i was actually kind of intrigued by but i like that we brought it back to five because that's honestly more important right now mm-hmm. yeah, let's make some stuff happen mm-hmm. yeah yeah gotta get some moving awesome. mm-hmm. yeah thank you andrea great question uh before we go to our weekly dose of good design uh, i wanted to let everyone know they can check out jody's work uh, by checking out massdesigngroup.org and Ja, if you're cool with it, only if you're cool with it, I will post a link to your spoken Go word. Go for it. Because at nice this point, resource. people can just search my name and it will come up yeah, anyway. Exactly. So. <laughs> cool. Okay. Now it's time for our weekly dose of good design, where we each share an example of good design that has impacted us or others in a meaningful way. I will go first. And we'll each share. So mine, um, if you're like me, you have about a million Chrome tabs open at any given time. Like maybe more than a million, like a zillion. Um, I don't know what it is about <laughs> the, that behavior. Like every new site I open has to be a new tab <laughs> and then they never close. Nope. By the end of the day, it's just ridiculous. And I like don't feel good about myself. So my weekly dose of good design isn't necessarily a fix. It's not a fix to that behavior, but it's more of a Band-Aid that Google just released for Chrome. Now you can right-click on a tab and assign it to be a group. And you can, this is my favorite, you can color code it and everything in my life needs to be color coded, yes. So you right-click, you add it to a group, you can name that group whatever you want, you can make it a color, and then you can add as many tabs as you want. So I have like the, the sites that I need for work, right, are all under work. And then you can move that group, that group of tabs around as a group. And you can also close all tabs except for that group, which is like the game changer. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's so good. So anyway, that's my weekly dose. Uh, Let's go to Julian. So I'm going to say Tuesday was a giving Tuesday and mass art uh, is full of designers and really good designers in all disciplines. And I want to just spotlight them for a moment and say that it is okay 
for you to donate to people like because most of the mass art students are students of color. Um, it's a public institution, the only public art institution in our country. And it's really important that their education is funded just like private art schools. And I would like to put them on a spotlight and put mass art in general on a spotlight because so many good designers come out of there. Please support the auction, things like that. Like this is really, really good design in general, but more importantly, like just feel free to donate to the school or even support auctions. Like I just want to highlight that. That's great. All right, John D., you're up. Okay, so I actually have two because y'all both went like very design oriented, whereas originally I did not. So I'm going to I'm gonna pull in my second one. But my first one is uh, this Christmas ornament that I have over here. And I'm, I like it because I'm not here for Christmas. I could honestly care less. I have like so many questions about why we celebrate it. So anyways, my fiance, like Christmas kid all day long, like this is her, she cannot wait. Like this is a thing. So first of all, we have this little tiny tree. It's real, but it's tiny. It's like three feet tall. I love it. But we bought a set of glass ball ornaments and the tops of them are wide enough such that like I can roll up certain things and put them Uh. inside the ornament. So that's how she got me engaged in the tree. decorating thing because I was like, oh, wait, we can personalize these. So like we have like great move photos of ourselves. We have love notes. We have great glitter. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> she knows she's like, oh, you you need to be able to design a part of this. Like, let me fold you she's like, into let me this. Engaged. <laughs> right. let, let me get you engaged. Uh, so I love them. They're so beautiful. I think there's like 12 of them or something on our little tiny tree and they're all individualized, which I think is awesome. But then kind of going into like a different realm of design. I have a case on my phone. It's a anti-gravity case. And I love this thing because essentially like I can peel off the back of it and stick my phone to pretty much any surface. Oh, wow. And it is out here saving lives, y'all. So like when I have to do a (laughs) recording for a poem, I can like stick it to my bathroom mirror or whatever. Does it not lose the stickiness? It does not lose the stickiness. As long as you put the cover back on it, once Mm. you're done with it, it it works perfectly fine. So, you know, Zoom life here, I find myself sometimes being in other places when I'm trying to do work, like a car. (laughs) So I can put (laughs) the phone, stuck it to the windshield while my fiance is driving and I have like a static zoom screen while i'm still working or just like other things it has come in so handy this thing that is sounds brilliant cool. another gift from my fiance she really knows how to like i was like get, she is on she is on it she bought it for i would have never found this thing on my own uh but yeah, yeah it sticks to everything pretty much except for like drywall it's awesome. amazing wow yeah i'm all i'm all in for it yeah so good awesome that's our show Thank you again to Julian Phillips and Jody Williams for joining us and for their awesome conversation. Thank you both. Thank you, Sam. You're welcome. And thank you to Boss Noma and ABX for having us. This was a lot of fun to collaborate. Again, thank you all for being here. We'll post those links <laughs> and resources that we discussed on our, and we'll put those on our episode page. Visit designmuseumeverywhere.org and click on podcast. As always, you can find us on social media. We're on Twitter at design underscore museum. And on Instagram, we're at design museum everywhere. Plus, we're on Facebook and LinkedIn as well. This episode was conceived as a collaboration between Design Museum Everywhere and the Boston chapter of the National Organization for Minority Architects for ABX. It was written and produced by the amazing Amor Yates with production assistance by Ryan Flom, who we wouldn't be here without. 
Our theme music is Orange Sunset by One Wave for the whole team here at Design Museum Everywhere. Thank you for listening and we'll talk to you again next week.